I would say a couple of absolute clear things for success has to come from communication and uh, cultural appreciation for one another. So fundamentally, if there's not respect, it's just never going to happen. And most of what I've seen fail internationally comes from that number one issue is uh, fundamental respect for human beings. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Being data-driven is a core principle that we talk about a lot here on The Dirt, and today's guest truly lives and breathes data. He is obsessed with mastering data and the fundamentals, whether that be in the office as a six-time founder and CEO that built his career working in digital media and advertising, or laying a beat down at the tennis courts in St. Pete, Florida. In today's discussion, we take a deep dive into his journey, turning a services company into a software company, and how he leverages global outsourcing to scale. Founder and CEO of Isocrates, Bill Letterer, welcome to The Dirt. Great. Hey, Jim. Great to be with you. Thanks to thanks for having me. Great to have you. Great to have you. So, so six companies, <laughs> all in the same kind of atmosphere. Talk, talk to me about that journey from, you know, from the beginning. Well, it's uh, fairly unlikely. Um, it started while I was running another business that had nothing to do with uh, data or technology um, at all. Uh, I was running a very traditional business that I had started with my father long ago and uh, uh, heard about a guy who had a similar job to the one that I was doing on Wall Street uh, earlier on in my career who had left uh, what he was doing in New York and he and his wife traveled West to go sell books on the World Wide web. And uh, I was paying attention and uh, did my homework and said, Oh my goodness, I, I'm going to really kick myself at 70 looking backwards. If I don't wind up doing something about this, because it's so clear that this is going to change the world first in B2C and then B2B. So for me, the digital journey started in um, really 1997 when I decided to do something and not just be an observer and kind of jump into, into the business. So I started in e-commerce. And now fast forward, you know, six companies later, you guys are doing some, some great things at your current brainchild, Isocrates. Um, what's, yeah, what's happening? So I would say, um, as opposed to starting out uh, in what we're doing as a product seller, I would say that we really started out uh, really as a technology-enabled service provider, not necessarily the sexiest thing that's done in the world of digital, but one where it was pretty clear that there was a large number of um, potential clients that were kind of needy, underserved, and uh, we thought maybe we could help. And uh, we've spent the last seven years building a technology-enabled service business that has uh, found some success 
continuing to try to do a good job for those clients, uh, adding value where we can. And along the way, basically found some unmet needs that they had and that others have. And so we're balancing the um, how to be a great professional services provider at the same time that we are birthing and scaling a, a product business, supporting the same clients and other clients like them. Yeah. And, and so you've got this services company turned software SaaS company eventually, but a few iterations to, to get there first from consulting to manage services and then eventually SaaS, if I'm correct, right? Correct, but not dropping one to get to another, really um, adding more branches of the tree. Can strategy and operations consulting beget managed services? Will those managed services beget uh, SaaS software sales of our own proprietary um, platform? And then can it come back around? Could a SaaS customer become a services customer buying managed services and consulting? And it turns out the answer is yes. If you're careful and you stay focused on um, client benefits and you kind of get out of yourself and really invest yourself in their success, it is possible to ride three ponies at the same time, but you, you, you better be careful and stay very focused. As long as those ponies are tied up next to each other, to each other, <laughs> right? Yep. I agree. In in our case, we're we're in the media and marketing services business. We support uh, media and marketing clients now on four continents and around the clock. Um, But it's very much focused within ad tech and martech. And then our clients are either on the buy side or the sell side or both. So you said goal in, in moving from consulting or not moving from, but, you know, building a managed services business on top of the consulting business um, was really a big move for you guys um, early on, right? And you know, became a pretty large segment of your employee base offshore. Is that correct? Yeah. We went offshore because it was our observation as consultants that our clients were really having a tough time uh, executing yeah. uh, for many reasons. But that is, once we'd seen enough of these clients in our own operating experience, it became very clear that um, they needed to consider other options. And I couldn't understand why they weren't pursuing offshore to a greater extent. And it turns out for a variety of reasons, that wasn't going to be easy for them. And what they were really looking for was a trusted advisor that would take responsibility and really be accountable, owning end-to-end the entire experience and and trying to make it easier for them. And so we we bit off on that. And uh, it's been five years of uh, pretty consistent success in that space. How has that been in you know global business, right? With um, everything from the pandemic and global travel, and you know, how- or no tra- no travel. I mean, were you well, literally global, yeah cannot, the lack of global travel, right? You, you can't even get to your employees. Not we're not talking about days, weeks, months. You're talking about a couple of years of total inability to be able to get there. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that's a t- complete test from a manager's standpoint. How good are your processes, controls, the people that you're hiring? Obviously, it's got to be great managers that are in place over there. Hours, in, we're in India. That means that I've got to get up before the sun comes up every day. And I'm up way after the sun goes down at night. So these are long, long days. 
Yeah. Um, but it's my second go around. Uh, built a successful business in India previously that was a back end uh, supporting um, information services and publishing in other time zones. And that worked. And we're very fortunate. But in the end, this is the opposite of what a venture capitalist would want to hear. It's not about the technology, it's about the people. Yeah. Well, tr- true. But at the end of the day, um, you guys have built some incredible processes and some incredible people and some incredible bench with those people. So, you know, any secrets to share, especially on that outsourcing piece first, as as folks are looking to build outsource competencies from thousands of miles or even hundreds of miles away? Uh, I think it really has benefited us to have managers, including myself, that had cross-border experience. Right. None of us in our team were doing this for the first time. So you can't always do that. Somebody somewhere probably has never had the experience. And how do you get the experience but to do it and to jump in? So in in my case, I've already been building, running, and involved with global businesses for most of my career. So it hasn't been that big a, a challenge. But I would say... Starting out by identifying the core competencies that you're going to need and staying really narrowly focused because it it's it very, very typically it's that your clients may need you, want you to do many things. And the problem is you don't actually know, you may think you know, but you don't actually know what you're going to be really good at, um, the nature of the talent that you have to work with. Um, what those strengths and weaknesses will turn out to be. But the goal here is to get to um, repeatability, to be able to scale. Can you um, can you do uh, something well more than once, more than one client, or more than one iteration? Um, I would say a couple of absolute clear things for success has to come from communication and uh, cultural appreciation for one another. So fundamentally, if there's not respect, it's just never going to happen. And most of what I've seen fail internationally comes from that number one issue is a fundamental respect for human beings. So a man respecting a woman or someone from a different uh, religion or uh, race or life experience, um, you, you have to open yourself up not be judgmental, be a good listener, and really care and invest yourself in the success of that person, not just the function. Um, you got to have a partner that's going to be coachable and with high integrity. So when you put those things together, we're human beings. It's not, it's hard to get that mix right. Um, and if it's not right, you got to change it. Um, in all candor, I've got a woman, wonderful, talented partner, in in India doing a great job, but we haven't always had super success with some of the men that we've hired respecting her and um, giving her what she needs to be the leader that that she can and and should be. And so she needs to know that I have her back no matter what. Even when I think she's wrong, uh, you've got to be able to give that people room. And when it's that far away, it's unlikely that you have the answers. The person who is closest to the market probably knows more than you do. And when you're an American in particular, I mean, we're a little bit arrogant about business. We tend to think that, you know, we've seen it, done it, been exposed to it sooner, know more, et cetera. And it just isn't true. It, it isn't. And you, you got to 
disabuse yourself very early on that what you know and what's in your experience and your, you know, the rules that you've been operating by, that they apply someplace else because they probably don't. And uh, you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble if you approach things tabula rosa from a blank slate. Um, and, and you're going to have to trust, which is a very hard thing to do for most entrepreneurs, particularly early stage or growth stage. Really hard. It's not a natural thing. It's not how we got to where we are by being super trusting. Okay. Basically, we got there because we were typically really focused on outcomes and um, we invested ourselves personally in the success of whatever it is that we were working on. So not easy. Great test for us. I have super, super confidence in, in my teams there because uh-huh. we've been through a lot together, a lot. And I know a lot of folks listening have probably been through the the offshore experience in one way or another. And there's a lot of negative sentiment out there because of how the approach has failed many times for a lot of founders. And, you yeah. know, did you have any experiences in, in, in failing along the way that, um, that you can share? Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> let me start with the end game. So when, if anybody should come to visit me, in the cemetery, I would not be disappointed if the tombstone said something to the effect of he didn't quit. Uh, It's all been about failure. It's a failure all the time. It's just a question of scale. It's a lot of learning. And, uh, and you gotta have, I mean, for my experience and all of this digital stuff, you gotta be wired in a certain way where you just gotta keep on moving through it. Um, so I think for us, um, early failure would be probably the one that the things that I've felt most personally around people, um, where you might have the right person in the wrong role or the wrong time in their career or there, something's not quite right. And, uh, so I, I tend to feel that a little bit more maybe than some other people. It maybe isn't as obvious from the outside, but it doesn't feel it on the inside. So I think there's been failure around people. Um, I would say uh, um, when you're in the services uh, industry, there are a lot of elements that you have less control over, more fungible. And I would say um, particularly on the consulting side of the business, uh, you have what your client gives you to work with. And uh, if it was so easy, they don't need you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and you know what? The day that you start on things, you don't necessarily know everything that you're going to need to know to be successful. Um, but I've been really fortunate. I think the reason that we even exist after seven years and hopefully have a really great future, I think it has to do with the fact that we have a great mix of clients. Um, and what we try to be for the client is the hardest thing that you can get in business, which is to be a good partner. Uh Almost everything today tends to be transactional. Yeah. Everybody's in a hurry. There's a lack of trust. Oftentimes, communication is not what it should be. Uh, Short-term, you know, very outcomes-oriented. And I would say we work especially hard to be a great partner. But you know what? 
not everybody wants you to be their partner or knows how to be a great partner. So that's the, for us, that's the glue. And the reason it's so important for us is we didn't take venture capital or private equity. We're a bootstrap business. I had to live on the cash flow that the business has generated. And we could not afford and chose not to hire salespeople. Instead, we thought, let's start like an iceberg under the surface. We're going to focus on delivery execution. We're going to be really good at it and we'll lose our customers slower than our competitors. That's how we'll compete. Sort of a weird way to think about it in a growth industry. Everybody's always focused on, you know, how do you scale the the new accounts? But we, we took a very different approach was let's do a good job for the limited number of customers we have. And we're going to make sure that those people are referenceable and if they're not scalable uh-huh. and let, let's protect ourselves. Let's not bet on whether the sales organization is going to be able to overcome the weaknesses of execution. And it's worked in many ways for us. And one of the benefits is that from a cap table and balance sheet standpoint, you know, we didn't, we haven't, uh, screwed the pooch we haven't uh, risked the whole business and I haven't uh, diluted my equity um, as a result of betting on future sales mm-hmm. really kind of bet on um, dance with a lady that you you bring to the uh, to the party and uh, that's turned out to be a very good thing for us so far it, I, I don't know that it's going to get us to the end game but I think it was a good way to start the business and a good way to build the culture. Well, the uh, you know that journey from consulting and adding on managed services, you know what comes next is the great software and SaaS that you guys are building and MadTech BI and you know what was what was the goal at Isocrates in in building the SaaS solution on top of your already profitable model? Uh. A couple things. So I think the first thing is that I was running out of hours to bill in energy. Yeah. It wasn't that I wanted to, and I was enjoying, and I do enjoy that work. It's just uh, there are only so many hours that I can I can give to what I'm doing. And I literally, as an entrepreneur, one way I processed the SaaS opportunity was, gee, there's an opportunity to make money while I sleep. For a guy who builds the minutes of his life, that's a that's that was a, something that was deeply appreciative. Um, so I would say that was one thing. But fundamentally, the the real issue for us with SaaS was basically unmet needs in the industry where it was just sitting there right in our face. It's like, okay, there are no tools available that are good at this, this, and this. We need it ourselves. Our clients need it. Um, all but two of our employees are engineers by training. We're we're not intimidated by um, building things. And we said, okay, we know what we're looking for. We'll get started. This is going to take us years. We'll be patient. Don't assume there's any revenue coming from this. Let's just work on it and let's see how far we can get. Mm-hmm. So um, it has another benefit, which is that someday we'll seek to monetize what we've created and presumably a, a smart buyer will find that this is that the SaaS business is pretty sticky. It's directly related to the rest of what we're doing. It can scale and it meets a lot of important unmet needs in media and marketing. So, you know, we, we built, it's a purpose-built business intelligence platform, very sophisticated, that is multi-tenanted, cloud-based, um, and affordable. And um, 
it's been working out for us. But to be clear, not a pivot, yeah. not a not a different business. One company, different um, lines of revenue, and ultimately will have its own leaders, its own resources. And I hope someday to kick myself upstairs so that I can be more of a capital allocator and not the chief cook and bottle washer for each of these revenue lines. Well, by kick yourself upstairs, I hope you don't mean kick yourself up to heaven too soon because you got a lot more building to do. <laughs> Thank you. Just in case uh, uh, there's plenty of life insurance there. And should anything happen to me, I just want to share. I just want to share with you. There's there's one woman in my life. I'm just putting it out there. If anything should happen, this is this is being recorded. No, I'm, I'm, I'm half kidding. The uh, I think the thing that has made all of this happen. You haven't asked the question, but I just want to share it with you. And and I'm fairly resentful that in most entrepreneur interviews, this doesn't really come up. All of this is possible for me because I have a partner at home that's able to support the ups and the downs and the craziness of this serial entrepreneurial life. Um, We've been together for about 35 years. It's a long time. And uh, we're talking about unbelievable highs and ridiculous lows and a lot of crazy things in between. And um, all of this is, is, is possible because of basically two women in my life. I'd like to say my mother, but she's not with us anymore. So I guess there'd be three women. But I would say it's really been um, uh, my wife and my business wife, who's in India, uh, running delivery for us. Because those two people basically have put up with me. And and oftentimes where I'm seeing something that other people aren't, you know, it's that reality distortion field that entrepreneurs are famous for. And uh, particularly when you're taking a very profitable service business and plowing that money back into a product business that's not generating any cash and it won't because itself, it has to grow. And uh, it would be very easy to say, you know what, you don't need to do the product business. You have a perfectly good service business. It generates good cash flow, doesn't require much capital. It's, it, it's enough. It's enough already. You know, I, I agree. It's, it's not talked about enough, the, uh, what it takes to live with and, and put up with and, and be the other, the other better, much better half <laughs> of, uh, at least in my case, um, of, of putting up with an entrepreneur and being that support system. It's, it's not talked about enough because it takes entrepreneurs are the craziest and looniest and, and, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, hardest people to live with. I can imagine, at least I'm told by my fiance Steph, (laughs) and that's only been seven years, right? So, you know, the the amount of years that you've had that support, um, I appreciate you calling that out. It's uh, it's not talked about enough. You're right. So, and you know, a lot of times we think about like when you're, um, in the business, you're physically, you know, at, at your desk in the office or at clients or whatever. But for me, I don't know about other people, but for me, you know, when I'm not in the business, I'm on the business. I'm thinking about it mm-hmm. and thinking about, you know, how to grow it and how to defend it. Um, a lot of my thinking tends to be more like a chess player's. I'm thinking a lot of steps ahead. What are all the bad things that can happen in trying to make sure that that we've uh, considered those things and we're doing something about it? We're investing really heavily right now in uh, learning and development, basically the future of the business in terms of investing in our people. 
and very time consuming. It's going to be very expensive, but I'm looking ahead saying we, we have to do this. And hopefully I'm right about that. But again, it goes back to if you don't have the right support, whether it's your people at home or the office or your investors. I simplified my life a little bit by not having investors to second guess the investments that I'm making. That may not always be the case, but it has been so far. Yeah. You know, uh, you bring up this good point of working on the business work versus working in the business. And I run into that all the time, right? It's, it's founders that are so stuck in the day-to-day that they forget to take a step back and work on the business or letting the business run them, especially in this early growth stage, right? Um, any any uh, hints there, any secrets other than have, obviously your wonderful support system that probably helps you to have, have a different perspective? Any other any other secrets to making sure, any systems that you develop to make sure that you take the time to work on the business versus just in it? So I'm a planner. You know, there's many different kinds of entrepreneurs and a lot of different routes to success. I'm a little bit less spontaneous. I'm more someone who's going to think things through, write them down. Um, I think pretty far ahead, years ahead. Um, So I think for me, I'm visualizing and really quantifying and thinking through, you know, what's this going to look like, you know, and what's it going to look like to someone else? Because ultimately I'm only going to be the steward of this business for a certain length of time. And then it's going to be someone else. What are they inheriting? Um, How, how is this going to be there? Not only for, for all of the people that, that we're thinking about, but the most important, the most important people are your customers. You know, how, how is this going to uh, regenerate over time? And uh, so I would say for me, before I do anything, before I make any decisions, I'm always uh, looking ahead. I'm looking out on the on Tampa Bay right now at, at dusk. And, you know, when you're sailing, you're not picking a point to navigate right in front of the bow. You're picking a point on the horizon and you are setting uh, your navigation against that in part because what you see on the horizon is fairly fixed and unmoving. What is right in front of your nose in front of the bow, that view changes and it's not necessarily the right view. And so I think for me, it's, I'm trying to build value, ultimately um, shareholder value, but a set of values. Mm-hmm. And then what you want to do is for me, was write it down. For me, clear writing is clear thinking. It allows me to go back and say, did I get this right? Was I right for the right reasons? Was I wrong for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? You know, what, what's changed in my thinking? So this is no different than what someone like Warren Buffett would say about making an investment. You're trying to do something based on a set of reasoning. But the thing is, if you don't write it down, it's easy to lie to yourself about what you thought yeah. What were what was your rationale for decisions that you were making, and um, and I find writing things down for me, it's helpful and it's humbling because it never works out exactly the way that you thought. You know, it turns out the things that you thought were unassailable facts turned out to be myths, yeah. or conditions in your industry changed for whatever reason, and so I'm. You know, you're talking to a guy who's written six books and I'm a graduate school professor, so I write things down. 
we all have our weaknesses. That's my weakness. What's the best book that you've written? Oh, I haven't written it yet. It's in my head. That's there's the two. That's unwritten. <laughs> there's two. There's two of them actually. So you know, maybe someday I'll have the time. I'll take the time to to write them. But at the moment, they're writing themselves in my head. Yeah, that's that's great. You you know, you mentioned um, listening to and learning from your customers a few times, and that that's you know changed the way that you think about and or operate the business. Not necessarily pivots, but new business opportunities and and um, that's really the, what business, what great businesses are all about, right? Is is listening to and learning from your customers to to provide a better customer value, right? Since ultimately they're, they're the ones paying for it, paying you yes. paying you the bucks. Um, any other other than you know, obviously the new business opportunities that emerged from a you know managed services and software perspective. Any other things that you've learned from your customers that have really changed the way you think about and operate the business? I was very fortunate to have not a good customer, but a really wonderful customer and personal and professional relationship with a very important account for us that's been with us for a long time. And I learned an awful lot from how a general manager chose to run his business and to interact with his people and his business partners. And uh, I, it wasn't clear at the outset because I was older and far more experienced than this person that I was going to learn as much as I did from him. And he thinks that he learned more from me, but I'd like to think that I learned more from him. He, he has a way with people that's extremely effective. And it comes from not needing to be known as the smartest guy in the room. Even if he may be, it's a very specific way of orienting yourself where you're asking questions and you are not falsely humble. You're just open and you're looking for discourse and disagreement and you're empowering people. And I saw it in action for years, and it's great. You can't teach what that guy has. And it was just great to be in his presence. And, and I saw the positive outcomes that, that were associated with it. So, um, you know, a lot of times when you're uh, an entrepreneur, um, you're supposed to be the answer guy. Uh, the smartest guy or the guy with the ultimate decision or whatever. And there's a lot to be learned from people who are, who open themselves up to a greater extent. And I got a chance to see that. And, and I'm, I'm very respectful of it. So would you say vulnerability is a very good quality in a leader then? If it's authentic. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of inauthentic quote unquote leadership that we are seeing expressed in life. And I think, I think when it's real, you know it, and people respond to it. What's an example of inauthentic vulnerability? Just, you know, what, what does that, what does that mean to you? And where do you see, where do you see that um, percolated a lot? Oh, I think that it's been highly cultivated by the political class in this country. (laughs) So so, (laughs) so I I would say that, um, 
you know, why, why are we drawn to uh, Zelensky as a leader? There are several reasons, but one is that he's, he's authentic to who he is and the circumstances that he's in. He's, he's uh, showing personal sacrifice and bravery. He's plain spoken. Um, I'm not talking about his politics. I'm just talking about his leadership uh, style. And humanness. Yeah. And, and I think people really relate to that. The other challenge that, that, uh, <laughs> that his opponent has to deal with is David versus Goliath. I mean, as human beings, we generally uh, have a tendency to, to support uh, David. And, um, but, uh, you know, uh, you can read too many business books, but you can never be exposed to enough uh, people and managers. And particularly that the tell is really when things are not going well. Very easy when things are going well, uh, but when things are challenging, uh, watch how people uh, act. Yeah, and you know you've you've um, you've obviously had a lot of leadership and management experience. Um, you've you know now taken Isocrates to to a new level with the SaaS solution, and things are. Uh, things are bootstrapped to almost a hundred people now. A great company that's that's had its that that's had its growth and and you know what do you see as what do you see as the next stop? You know, bootstrapped to this point is it acquire capital, acquire other businesses, get acquired? You know, any anything that you can share about the next step on the journey? So, I think that if I don't change the way we're doing things. I think that we run a risk of having the entrepreneur who um, got the business to this point. I think there's a risk that he'll suffocate the growth of the business. I don't think that I'll put it out of business. I think that we won't realize the potential if I don't change the way in which I orient myself to the business, the capitalization of the business, the scope and scale of the business. Um, I think it can, can continue to have a very nice and we're, we're growing significantly organically. But, you know, I watch, I, I watch people, some people who are Six Sigma events, for those people that aren't familiar, imagine statistically you're at the far end of the curve. This is, you know, someone who's very, very rare, Warren Buffett in the world of investing. In the world of business, there are people like Michael Dell, that have reinvented themselves continuously in running their businesses. Jeff Bezos, uh, Tesla, uh, uh, Tesla's CEO. There's a whole series of these guys where it's like unbelievable. It's the same. He's still there. Yeah. And and I would say that I think the challenge for us as we move from startup into a growth stage is what got us to where we are is not what's uh, appropriate for the next seven years of our business. And so I look forward to growing into being that leader and bringing us the resources that we need and creating the opportunities for people in the company to keep growing. And um, it's fun. Honestly, I I think I've gotten four job offers while I've been running this business, um, primarily from the companies that have been my clients. And I've turned them down. And I've always thought that this is, 
as about as much fun as I could have. Like this, this is going to contain all of the passion and interest and enthusiasm that I want to have in what I'm doing. And and uh, so I'm really looking forward to being a growth stage company, um, just as much as I was looking forward to surviving the startup phase. Yeah. Well, you heard that. You heard that, investors. Uh, sounds like there may be an opportunity for you if you're looking for a hot company. Uh, Bill's uh, Bill's finally open to bringing on some outside capital. Look at that. <laughs> well, that's that's great. I'm sure there's there's a lot of people happy to hear that. Um, you know, the uh, you brought up this thing early in the show about building for shareholder value. While we're on the subject of shareholders and and investors and um, all too often, it's very easy to build for profitability and and build for you know um, individual wealth and build for lifestyle. Businesses, in many cases, is, is kind of what you might call that, rather than building for growth and shareholder value. Um, any any obstacles that you've overcome in bootstrapping the business and and getting yourself to think more about building for growth versus just you know building for a lifestyle business. For me, the number one issue is that I'm married to somebody that has allowed me to reinvest in the business. Not everybody has that situation. Um, we've chosen to live under modest circumstances and to keep our living costs uh, low. Um, my wife enjoys working and she's good at it. And that that's great. Um you know, I know that you're asking about the business, but basically we're all human beings and we have to live with a certain set of, of expectations uh, around us. And I'm in a situation where I've got a family that supports my reinvesting aggressively in the business and living modestly and focusing on the business. So, um, you know, you, you better make sure that that you've got that support system in place for whatever the decisions are that you're going to make and um, um, that you guys are aligned. Cause I got to tell you, if it's not going to work and let's say that you're a married person, Oh my gosh, is that an expensive uh, alternative direction? Uh, hopefully that doesn't happen uh, for me. It hasn't happened yet. I'd like to think we're probably stuck to one another at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it it happened to me with my with my first um, fiance, right? I uh, I ended up having to end the engagement largely due to that circumstances of, of of viewing things from different lenses. And I'm you know I I saw that right, and now I see this you know wonderful. I'm going to get married in two months, my fiance, and she's been supportive for the last seven years almost. And I feel that right. I feel that like what would have happened if I had gone through the first, you know, the first marriage and, um, it would have been the exact opposite of what I'm experiencing in, in support and, and growth. So it's not just important to pick the right business partners. Half the journey is the founder. It's part of the journey. And most of that is the support system they've got behind them. So I think that's, that's yeah. incredibly and, wise. Worth and by, by the, by the way, the other thing that I haven't mentioned here is, you know, I'm an older entrepreneur where my kids are already grown, but for most entrepreneurs, you get another issue, which is your family. I mean, you've got primary responsibilities, and too often those those kids who have difficult difficulty advocating for themselves, they wind up getting sacrificed along the way. Yeah, and 
in, you know, I've been a serial entrepreneur. So you're telling yourself, I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it for them. It won't always be this way. Uh, and you know what? You're never going to get that time back. It just, yeah. it, it's gone. And um, there's no skipping steps in any of this. You will pay ultimately for every single step that you thought that you skipped. You live long enough. I guarantee you it all comes back. It all comes around. And uh, uh, just, you know, got to think about that. Um, uh, you know, there are people that I observe uh, that are not paying their taxes or not paying full taxes. I don't know who they think they're fooling. They're going to have a problem. Uh-huh. There are other people that I see where they're taking advantage of other human beings. And, um, you know, life is, is long. You, you're going to need to cross bridges again. Well said. Well said. Whether that bridge is in, in this life or the next. I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, <laughs> that's the gist of it, right? It's, you, you, uh, life is a series of debits and credits, whether it's in the tax system or the moral system. <laughs> so, right. I, uh, well, and the other thing is that there's a favor bank in life. Uh, I come from Chicago. If the, there is definitely a favor bank uh, that exists in Chicago, and to some extent it exists in New York as well, I've observed. And uh, if you put on a, enough karma over the course of your career, it is amazing how that comes back for you. And I am just old enough. My father shared that with me a long time ago, and boy, was he right. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And um, anyway, what's next? Those are great. Those are great words, man. Great, great words. So, um, you know, we, uh, this part of the show, we usually like to talk about what I call the founder five, which is, you know, questions towards the end of the show that all surround growth that help us to learn just a little bit more about you and about the business. Um, So first one is what's the number one, metric or KPI that, that you're relentlessly focused on? Well, okay. So first of all, do not overinvest in my response to his questions <laughs> because everybody's got a different set of circumstances. They're, they're a different place in their business. At the moment, the number that I'm concerned about is a contribution margin number, mm-hmm. but the larger context is I'm, I'm, maniacally concerned about uh, customer retention. So that that it's their satisfaction, customer retention, that making sure that they're in a good place, that's my number one issue. It always will be. I just come from that orientation. Mm. So aside from that, what's the metric that's of top of mind for me? It's a contribution margin number. To be clear, that's cost of goods sold less the direct costs associated with servicing a piece of business. So what causes me to think about that is if you don't have a um, minimally viable contribution margin to your business, it means that you're in no position to reinvest in your business. Essentially, what's going to happen is you're going to starve your company and you're not going to be able to, to grow that business. Uh-huh. And so I'm particularly concerned about reinvesting in learning and development. I have a very specific intent here. 
which is how can I reinvest a certain amount of our overall economics back into my people? Love that. Yeah, I can't yeah. do it if the contribution margin isn't high enough. Now, how do you get to a better contribution margin? Well, you're going to be able to have to command better pricing in the market. How are you going to do that? So in my case, I'm trying to upskill my people to make sure that we are the best we could possibly be in what we're doing from a technical and operational perspective. And my raw material is human beings. And so I'm specifically at the moment, I would say I'm obsessed with making sure that contribution margin gives us the ability to get to what we need. So I'll give you another example. In the case of these people that we're talking about, one is to make sure that at least one day of every month, every employee, managers and associates, everyone has at least one day set aside or the equivalent in hours of not billing clients, not doing administrative whatever, but it's specifically focused on learning and development, explicit, measurable goals and objectives around upskilling. And it could be soft skills or hard skills, could be improving your command of English, or could be getting certified and, you know, the next uh, Salesforce uh, uh, specialization, for example. Uh-huh. So, so my version of the contrib- going back to contribution margin is, I want to make sure that I've got 152 uh, billable hours a month. And not more than that, because I'm going to burn people out and they're not going to have time to be able to work on their skills if those billable hours exceed exceed that. So I'm not raising my prices in any dramatic fashion, but what I'm saying to my clients is I need you to know I got to pull this person offline one day out of the month and we'll figure out how to manage that so you're not hurt. And we've got people to substitute, we'll figure it out. So contribution margin, uh, by the way, uh, related to retention is just recurring revenue. How, how do we, how do we get the benefit of the commercial version of herpes, the gift that keeps on giving? What? <laughs> I'm not sure that I want to be famous for that right. quote. I'm going to <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but contribution margin, recurring revenue, Investing yeah. in your people along the whole cycle to make sure those are as meaningful as possible. I love, I love that. Love it. Um, what is the top tip for growth stage, growth stage founders like yourself? Uh, it's the advice I'm going to give you is the advice I'm giving myself is that what it took to get you where you are is unlikely to be what it's going to take to get you to where you want to be. Huh. That's awesome. And favorite book or podcast, other than the ones that are in your head, of course, that have helped you grow? <laughs> uh, recently, I'm going to give you a book that probably nobody's heard of, but you can find it on Amazon, and it's it's well done. Um, we're a services business that's in the process of productizing. So here's a book that's specifically on productizing coming from a service orientation. Okay. It's called Productize. It's uh, written by... Uh, uh, Aisha uh, Armstrong. Um, actually, I'm not even sure that it's Aisha. I think it's Alicia. Hold on just a second. Aisha, I thought it was Alicia. Um, it's called Productize, and it's an easy read. There's good meat in it, and um, it's allowed me to focus on that specific 
process that we're going through right now. Yeah. And, and there's lots of free tools available on her website that are going to be right up any entrepreneur's alley. All right. Next up, here's a fun one for you. What actor would play you in a movie or actress if you prefer? Okay. So um, I've spent a lot of time on airplanes prior to COVID. And it's not been unusual for me to be asked for my uh, autograph. Huh. So unfortunately, I don't get any of his residuals. But I would say let's go with James Gandolfini. Oh, there you, I see it. I see it. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. All right, we're gonna have to get one of those uh, side portraits for the uh, for for the yeah. show. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm about the same height and I'm about the same girth. So when you put the whole package together, I, I don't know that the podcast really did did me justice with that. Well, what's life without the whole package? So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think my, I think my wife would say there's more life without it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The fifth question: What is going to be the title of Bill Letterer's autobiography? Ah, uh, never quit, or um. How bad do you really want it? Two different ones, right? Not never quit or how bad do you want it? Never quit oh. or <laughs> two different. No, I'll take I'll take both. I, I that's that's one that's one title. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, um, shit happens. It, it's going to, and it's going to be a whole range, a beautiful spectrum of horribleness that you cannot predict. And, and uh, you're going to have to make your way through it and you may not get any help in doing so. And there are times when, and it could be really, really horrible. I won't go through sort of the full range of the stuff that I've dealt with uh, over decades, but it can be bad where you, you have to look inside yourself. And again, it's like, how bad do I, do I really want this? And in my case, I've, I've always doubled down. I've never been a quitter and maybe that's a weakness, but it, it's, it's where I am um, or who I am. Self-awareness is, is half the battle and not believing that you have to be superhuman <laughs> is an important part of that. So I love the vulnerability that you've expressed with us in the show today and really appreciate, you know, you've given so much to our listeners today, Bill um, time for a little bit of, self-promotion for how others can help you and, and, you know, Isocrates and the rest of your team. And, you know, any, how can those listening help you out? Oh, well, thank, thank you for asking. Uh, if you think that what you find on our websites, and I will give you those internet addresses, if you think that there's something there where you think we can help you or you think that there's something that you can do or your firm, your products and services, people that, you know, if you think that there's some way to add value uh, for what we're doing, um, I'm, I'm uh, open to hear. Um, uh, one of our websites is isocrates.com. I S O C R A T E S.com. The other is madtechbi, M-A-D-T-E-C-H-B-I.com. Um, 
I can tell you that the most important thing about our business after our customers is uh, the people that work in the business. We are always looking for good people, always. In the U.S., we're primarily looking for um, account management or what we call partner success, and we're looking for solutions architects. Um, and we will be looking for salespeople. Shockingly, in seven years, we haven't had salespeople, but one of those things that'll be different about the next seven years and the last seven years is we're going to have a sales organization and a marketing organization. Um, I think the other thing is if anybody's seeing this uh, in India or hearing it in India, uh, love India, love Mysore, India, or Mysuru uh, in Karnataka. And uh, if you think that there's something that you can do for us uh, working in India, we'd love to know more about you. That's terrific. And we'll include those links um, in, in the show notes for everyone as well. And so on that note, Bill, you know, thank you so much for joining us on the dirt and sharing your dirt and just being vulnerable in the dirt, getting a little dirty. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Thank you very way? much. What's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? Is it is it LinkedIn? Is it email? You know, any any certain way? Yeah, I'll I'll give you two ways. Uh, so LinkedIn, I'm uh, William Letterer, L-E-D-E-R-E-R on LinkedIn, uh, and you can send me email at Bill dot L at Isocrates I S O C R A T E S dot com, and um, I have a quick comment here. So Jim and I have uh, shared a client previously in our professional career, not very long ago. And I just wanted uh, people to know um, he's not just a great podcaster and a great interviewer, but you're talking about a, a phenomenal consultant, somebody who can run a consulting business, but whose skills with clients are exceptional, um, great at leading teams, uh, really good listening skills, a very patient person. And uh, I'm just super taken with Jim as a consultant, as a management consultant. And I just wanted people to know that. Um, I'm humbled by that. Thank you, Bill. And it was a pleasure working with you at that client. And I uh, I look forward to uh, any times that our paths cross and really look forward to hearing all the great things that continue to come out of Isocrates. So thanks again for joining us. And um See you later on the dirt. Thank you. Bye, everybody. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.